welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Supplement use is frequently associated with patient self-selection and low levels of evidence. However, several supplements have recurrently been recommended for use by outpatient clinicians, especially for conditions with limited prescription options. It is important for healthcare providers to familiarize themselves with these supplements, especially as patients may be reporting recommendations from other providers. Here today is my pharmacist colleague, Dr. Linda Huang, to help showcase select supplements that have been recommended for use in certain conditions, such as post-COVID syndrome and chronic fatigue syndrome, and to present literature regarding their supposed effects. My goals for today is to highlight some um, supplements that have been recommended by providers that I've been seeing in practice, as well as to describe considerations and literature for why uh, these supplements may be used and to highlight them through some patient cases. Disclaimer here is that this is accumulation of um, supplements I've seen over the past uh, few months or so, so it may not uh, correlate to current practice, as well as different providers may have have different recommendation products, so it does not apply to uh, any select providers here. So first going into supplement use, um, supplement use is common and prevalent within the United States. In 2022, 75% of Americans report using a dietary supplements. And especially in the setting of the recent pandemic, two thirds of these supplement users report adding a new supplement or increasing the doses of their current supplements. Factors that have been identified with increased supplement usage include those with older age, females, higher education, and those with a higher household income. And so majority of supplement users are taking vitamins and minerals. The use of herbal and specialty supplements particularly increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. And for the purposes of today, whenever we speak of supplements, we are primarily referring to specialty and herbal supplements unless defined otherwise. So first to start off, I did want to pull the audience here to ask, have you ever recommended use of an herbal or specialty supplement? Um, yes, no, or only in a personal capacity such as for yourself um, or for friends and family when they ask. So you can respond at um, pollev.com slash MayoRx or text MayoRx to 22333. So um, where it um, looks like for the most part, um, a lot of folks actually said yes, I think around 50%. A small segment said no, and then a good portion of folks also said that they were using it only on a personal level. So um, some of these studies are older, but the, what we found today does correlate with the data to state that most healthcare professionals personally do use supplements. And what has also been identified is that healthcare professionals who use supplements are more likely to recommend their use to patients, especially ones that they self-use or found that evidence for. And the outlook on safety and efficacy regarding supplements may deceive on the perceived evidence for a specific supplement, so it's very hard to have a general gauge of health professional attitudes. Um, however, um, I think this is the one where I missed, 
So sorry, back to this. Um, do you feel like the majority of your colleagues support the use of supplements? All right, it looks like we are in the majority that the answer is no, our colleagues do not support use of supplements. And that once again does correlate to data where um, it looks like um, in a st study before where they asked pharmacists, herbal medicines are not accepted by the majority of my colleagues. Um, around half of the pharmacists agreed with this um, statement and around 20% disagreed. So what this basically states is that there is this nuance within supplements where it looks like healthcare professionals are using and maybe even recommending, but we perceive that our colleagues do not accept this use. So there is this in-between gray area where um, providers may be um, talking about supplements with patients, but not necessarily with their um, colleagues. And this is where um, I do want to focus my presentation on, on supplements where I am seeing um, it being used in practice, but maybe there's not enough information between the healthcare professionals to understand why they're being used. And my goal is to highlight some of that today. So as we move forward, just some general considerations for the use of supplements. Obviously, the efficacy we will talk about in a little bit. But when we think about supplements, first, we have to consider their purity and safety. As we might know, FDA does not have purity and potency standards for supplements. And this leads to a lack of uniformity between manufacturers of the same ingredient. Just because you buy it from manufacturer A does not mean that it is formatted the same way or may react the same way when it's sold by manufacturer B. And this may be more apparent in some um, specialized supplements um, and some of the ones we'll discuss today. Another component is cost. As you might recall from a slide about demographics if, um, at the beginning of this presentation, higher income levels are associated with greater supplement use. And part of this might be due to the fact that supplements are not covered by insurance. And even if you're just using a few of them, you know, $10 a bottle for a month can quickly add up. And $10 might not be the price range we're talking about for some of the specific supplements um, and specialty supplements. And this is potentially due to limited manufacturers for certain supplements, especially for manufacturers who may have more self-imposed purity standards, um, can be quite expensive since they're trying to sell, um, to uh, pass on some of that cost to their consumers. So how does this cost play in the grand scheme of things for these patients? Also, we have to discuss the available information. There is limited studies available on many supplements. And um, a lot of healthcare providers feel like that they would benefit from additional supplement knowledge. So um, all of this has to be sort of weighed when we talk about is a supplement appropriate for a patient in addition to efficacy alone. So first, let's go into a case about pain management. So this is patient case number one, who is an 86-year-old female who presents to pharmacist visit for medication review. Her chief complaint for today is joint pain and stiffness. She has also um, comes with the fact that she has had increased blood pressure and weight since last annual checkup and was recommended lifestyle changes. But she tells you that my joint pain and stiffness is really keeping me away from um, committing to these lifestyle changes that my internal medicine provider wants me to do. She also reports frustration with the limited pain medication options. She was advised away from ibuprofen and naproxen um, due to her chronic kidney disease, as well as her blood pressure. And um, she then asked to go to orthopedics for a, 
opinions on what she could do next. Orthopedic says that she does not a good candidate for surgical interventions at this time. And he says, why don't you try turmeric? So the patient now is asking you as the pharmacist, how do I select and monitor um, the effects of turmeric? And as you can see on the right here, it's a medication list. Most of these are pain medication options over the counter wise for the management of um, her uh, joint pain and stiffness, um, but notably also on an opioid as well. And she did casually mention that she is probably going to increase her tramadol use if we aren't able to come to uh, some more information today at this visit. So with all this in mind, let's move on into learning a little bit more about turmeric. So turmeric is a root material from a member of the ginger family that is mostly found in um, Southeast Asia. It is used in traditional medicine in India and China, and it has proposed anti-inflammatory and antioxidant effects. So these effects are thought to be the benefits from the active ingredient curcuminoids, um, which consists of around two to 5% of the turmeric plant material. Curcuminoids are a hydrophobic molecule with low bioavailability, and it is noted by the NIH as being difficult to study for this reason, as um, different formulations are trying to increase this bioavailability um, via different methods, which changes the absorption and the dose that the patient is receiving. So the preparation can vary, um, matter quite considerably when you're picking a turmeric supplement. Now, why we think curcumin might work, it acts on inflammatory pathways. It selectively inhibits lipooxygenase, phospholipids A2, and COX-2. And notably, it does not inhibit COX-1, which is linked to the gastrointestinal irritation and kidney side effects of NSAIDs. In vivo studies further show that curcumin regulates neurological pain activity through TRPV1 of sensory neurons. So working maybe in a capacity similarly to NSAIDs, but also additional analgesic action, which is currently being studied upon. Now, when we look at turmeric effects, um, part of this is looking at how long do we think this patient might need to try it. So this is a graph based on um, a meta-analysis effects on the um, Western Ontario and McMaster University's osteoarthritis scales. So it's a self-administered questionnaire with higher scores related to worse symptoms and limitations. And one reason why this is used a lot in clinical studies is because it takes into account these different symptoms in the setting of activities of daily living. So what we are seeing here is between the studies available for various formulations of turmeric, uh, it seems like a slight improvement compared to placebo is seen um, over time, with um, a lot of the features um, occurring closer to that 12 to 16 um, week period being a time for all of that consistent benefits and pain function and stiffness to all manifest. Also, when we talk about turmeric and osteoarthritis, um, it is found through meta-analysis that curcumin typically is found to reduce pain and improve function compared to placebo. When compared to NSAIDs, it shows similar effects on joint pain and stiffness. One study that um, did a side-by-side -side comparison showed that 1,500 milligrams per day of curcumin split as 500 milligrams three times a day was non-inferior to 1,200 milligrams per day or 400 milligrams three times a day of ibuprofen. 
Another study showed that curcumin 500 milligrams three times per day had similar effects, but had less side effects compared to diclofenac 50 milligrams two times a day. Of course, limitations within these studies um, occur, and mostly it was small sample sizes, different trademark products are hard to determine um, which one might be more appropriate, as well as blinding and selection bias. But overall, there seems to be at least a trend in the positive direction for turmeric. So that's where we sort of stand right now. For effective systemize, there are positive studies that are existing, especially for osteoarthritis. There is the difficulty from identifying which one of these products would be the most appropriate to pick, especially um, with the meta-analysis showing benefits, but each of the individual studies using different products themselves. How does this all combine effectively? But on the most part, usage ranges from 500 to 1500 milligrams per day seems to be the marker where most studies are placing this product. Other considerations to the use of turmeric include that for increasing bioavailability, um, including the other um, methods that they used for um, purifying and extraction, it is often co-formulated co with black pepper as a um, bioavailability enhancing agent. And black pepper, which is a whole... Uh, talk that we can save for another day here. It has some related SIP effect, or SIP 450 effects, as well as bioavailability changes that can also occur to our prescription medications or other supplements. So how does all of that interplay with the um, side effects due to turmeric or this common co-formulator? But it, of turmeric itself, it is known as a theoretical CYP3A4 inhibitor. So we should keep that in mind for um, our patients on concurrent um, prescription medications. It is otherwise generally considered to be safe. There's some um, different studies regarding its um, hepatotoxicity, and we think at this point that hepatotoxicity may be due to um, the preparations of the plant materials, as currently there are just um, about as many um, studies regarding using turmeric for um, patients with liver disease as compared to the case studies re um, reporting hepatotoxicity. Because um, it has um, effects similarly to NSAIDs potentially, it does have that antiplatelet, anticoagulant effect to be monitored for if a patient's at high bleeding risk or might be going in for um, procedures. Um, on the patient front, most of the side effects that they might notice is the gastric intestinal intolerance, including um, maybe increased acid reflux and constipation. And then um, it can lower blood pressure and blood glucose for, for, for patients who are uh, very sensitive to those changes. Other than maybe this patient that we're going to talk about again, um, it might be a boon for her, but otherwise something to note as you um, may be titrating those medications. So back to this patient case once again. So just recalling some key components about her she has trialed a lot of the pain medications we already have available. Um, she is looking to increase opioids if she doesn't find an alternative option. NSAIDs are not um, appropriate for her use. She cannot undergo surgical intervention. What do we think about turmeric at this point in therapy for this patient? So my specific question for you is, which of the following advice would you provide this patient regarding turmeric therapy to answer her questions about appropriate supplementation? So is it A, 
Use of turmeric up to 1,500 milligrams per day and divided doses have been trialed. B, current evidence show that a four-week trial is sufficient to determine benefits in joint stiffness and function. C, avoid curcumin-containing turmeric products. Or D, turmeric therapy is not advised as it can worsen kidney function. Okay, it looks like the majority of uh, the answers are with A, which I would agree that use of turmeric up to 1,500 milligrams per day has been studied. Current evidence is looking for more of that long-range data past four weeks, probably closer to 12 to 16 weeks, to see that significant benefit in joint stiffness and function, but pain benefits have been recognized within four weeks. We do not want to avoid curcumin-containing turmeric products, as likely that is an ingredient of benefit. And turmeric therapy is not um, associated with worsening kidney function. All right, moving on to our next case. This is one about chronic fatigue. So a 28-year-old female presents to pharmacist visit for medication review. Her chief complaint is chronic fatigue syndrome that started prior to the diagnosis of fibromyalgia two years ago. Um, she has noted that she struggled with chronic fatigue things since her teenage years, but um, even though starting these fibromyalgia-related medications, it's maybe gotten a little bit worse, but not significantly. And she notes that these her current medication lists are great at um, solving her fibromyalgia-related symptoms. So on the fatigue front, she has a current prescription of Lix dexamphetamine, but she is not using because it gave her a lot of headaches, which then triggered into full-blown migraines, and she didn't really notice enough fatigue benefits to justify its use in that fashion. And she has also used modafinil, armodafinil, amphetamines, and dexamphetamine salts, and methylphenidate with no benefit or similar side effect. Um, on your chart review, you noted that um, a a uh, note from the fibromyalgia clinic suggested American ginseng as a potential treatment of fatigue in fibromyalgia-related patients. So patient is asking for your thoughts on anything that can possibly get through my day. She gives you a long story about how she is at the point where she's starting her career, but she's unable to finish her schooling because the fatigue is weighing so heavily upon her life that she doesn't feel like she can graduate um, with the correct grades, as well as to pursue the career that she wants to. So this is becoming a very heavy impact in her life, and she wants to try anything at all that's possible to um, help her out of this situation before she is thinking about applying for um, disability. So as we saw that ginseng is mentioned in the chart, let's talk a little bit more about this product. Ginseng refers to the root material from the Panax genus, referring to either Panax ginseng, also known as Asian ginseng, Chinese ginseng, Korean ginseng, or Panax um, quinquefolus, which is American ginseng. Uh, fun fact here, Panax is the genus, um, pan meaning all, and the nax part referring to treatment. It is known in various um, cultures as a treatment for all disease states. Important to note is that when we talk about ginseng, do not confuse it with Siberian ginseng, which is a totally other genus with completely different active ingredients. And as um, studies continue, both from the herbology side as well as from the medical side, there are noted difference between the effects of the ginseng species. So since American ginseng was mentioned, let's delve a little bit more into this one. So 
ginseng um, composts of around three to five percent of the active ingredient of ginsenicides. There are more than a hundred types of ginsenicides identified, and American ginseng is known for these differences in specific ginsenicides compared to um, other ginsengs. So that's primarily the way that, at least um, from the um, purity side, that we can try to figure out if a plant material is coming from uh, American ginseng product as opposed to something else. But we run into this barrier that in addition to the species of ginseng, percentage of ginsenicides may also vary based on growing conditions, as well as how they are stored and prepared. So there are a lot of factors um, that might be in play of whether or not a ginseng product that is trialed um, could be the same as another ginseng product that the patient acquires. And where we are at in the literature is that there's different ginsenicides have varied mechanisms of action. There are some that may act on the central nervous system. There are others that have antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties, and is also thought to have cortisol modulating effects. And this might relate to the fact that um, uh, typically speaking, um, uh, people think of American ginseng as having less stimulating effects than Panax ginseng. And while we think about this patient, let's talk also a little bit about chronic fatigue syndrome in case any of you are not familiar with this. It is also known as myalgic encephalomyelitis or systemic exertion intolerance disease. There are some thoughts that it is associated with the uh, central sensitization syndrome, where the um, patient's uh, system is overly sensitized, which is related to a number of different diseases, including fibromyalgia, migraines, and um, POTS. Chronic fatigue syndrome is characterized by significant fatigue symptoms for at least six months, including post-exertional malaise, unrefreshing sleep, and cognitive impairment. And it is a... Uh, diagnosis of exclusion, where you've basically excluded any other known medical causes, and this persists. There are no FDA-approved therapies for chronic fatigue syndrome. It is mostly managed through individual symptom treatments. So in this setting here, looking at American ginseng and chronic fatigue syndrome, there's actually very low amounts of studies available for ginseng use, and even less focusing on the American ginseng. More studies are available via ginseng's, the Panax version, uh, due to the uh, information coming from non-American countries. But what we do know is that American ginseng has been trialed for cancer-related fatigue. So notably in a study that was done here at Mayo, Rochester, um, it was found that um, a 2,000 milligrams of American ginseng versus placebo over eight weeks shows statistically significant benefits for fatigue with no significant difference in adverse effects. And um, the fibromyalgia folks um, postulated further that the mechanism for cancer-related fatigue is very similar to that for chronic fatigue syndrome and the fact that we believe it stems from the inability for the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis to regulate inflammatory processes. Mm -hmm. And this results in persistently elevated concentrations of inflammatory cytokines, which then leads to the fatigue itself. Also, um, there's a small collection of ginseng studies that showed that um, um, benefits for fatigue, but there are many limitations with these, including identification of the appropriate type of ginseng, the standardizations of the ginsenicides, um, 
concentrations, and as well as other problems with the smaller studies and how to extrapolate extrapolate the data across the many ways that fatigue could be potentially um, defined and treated. So where this puts us at the end of the day here um, is that ginseng may be potentially effective. Um, it's been used up to 3,000 milligrams daily, granted of various different products. And there's a lot of considerations for the selection of the product itself. Um, overall, the direct plant material may be preferred as this might help um, define the um, specific uh, concentration of that the patient is taking. Um, the greatest repository of American ginseng growth is actually right next door to us up here um, in Rochester, at least in Wisconsin. So um, that's where some of these studies have sourced American ginseng from, directly from the planters themselves. Also, we have to note that the extraction methods on ginseng extracts that may be available in pills or capsules, um, depending on the method, may cause estrogenic properties within the ginseng, which then brings up a lot of other potential side effects. And overall, there's a high level of impurities in commercially prepared products. A study that tested the purity of these found that up to 12% of the products they selected were um, adulterated, and um, around 23% of them um, had uh, ma plant materials or uh, things upon mass spectrometry that related to uh, fillers or inappropriate types of ginsengs being added compared to the one that is being marketed. Other considerations for ginseng, um, overall, it seems like ginseng is mostly well tolerated, but if it is overused, there is this potential for ginseng abuse syndrome, which manifests as changes in blood pressure, edema, depression, anxiety, insomnia, especially if taken too late at night, as well as morning diarrhea. Ginseng is also known for raising the blood pressure and um, being a, a blood thinner, so it's something that is um, on the list to watch out for pre-procedures. So back to this patient. So the patient was asking you anything that can possibly help me throughout the day. So then the question comes to, do we think that at a trial of American ginseng would be appropriate for this patient? So yes, no, or I don't know at this time. It looks like that um, half of people just went with the I don't know response, but out of the people who seem to have an opinion on this, majority are saying yes. It's, when I gave the choice, I don't know. I felt like there was a lot of, gonna be a lot of responses there. And I would say, I feel similarly that I'm not sure if we should be trying American ginseng. But if I'm pressed for a um, opinion on this, my considerations here is that the patient has already trialed known therapies in regards to stimulants. She's not able to tolerate and they don't have an effect. Um, and she is struggling quite severely with the symptoms of chronic fatigue itself. And for the most part, ginseng is likely tolerated within study doses. And I don't see any drug interactions off the bat um, with her current medications. So balancing this part with the no component, which is mostly the lack of robust evidence, brings in this question of, I lean slightly towards yes, because she's so desperate for anything that may help? Am I expecting that ginseng will be the life-defining treatment that she's been looking for all along? Probably not, not based on current studies, but do I think it's at least something that she could trial on the off chance that it is significantly helpful? Maybe. 
So um, from a pharmacist perspective, I think that's the part that I would want to weigh out as well as individualize to specific patients. If maybe she was not so desperately looking for um, any kind of benefit and she had chronic fatigue that was manageable, um, my balance will probably weigh a little heavier on that lack of robust evidence side and to see what else could be trialed for her instead. All right, moving on to the third and final case study I have here, which is regarding post-COVID clinic. So patient number three is a 62-year-old male who presents to pharmacy visit once again for medication review. Um, he reports that um, prior to catching COVID in December of 2021, he was very healthy, only on sertraline for a mild depression that was barely there, and a torvastatin because he has a family history of heart attacks. He, but now, since COVID, he is struggling with symptoms of severe fatigue, brain fog, abdominal pain, increased pain perception overall, insomnia, reduced taste and smell, and worsened anxiety and depression, most likely due to all of those prior symptoms bothering him on a daily basis. So the post-COVID clinic provider recommended Fizotin and SBMS supplementation. And the patient wants to know, what are your thoughts as a pharmacist on adding those supplements to my current regimen? And as we can see from the medication list, um, it is much longer than the sertraline atorostatin that he spoke of as of approximately uh, two years ago or uh, one year ago now. Um, she, he's added a lot of medications for um, pain management, um, different types for the abdominal management, um, neuropathic pain management, insomnia management. So there's a number of things that were added here that he is looking for potential to get those off of his list if possible. So on the supplement front, let's first talk about Fizotin. Fizotin is a flavonoid that is naturally found in many fruits and vegetables. There's the highest amount in strawberries followed by apples and persimmons. It is an antioxidant studied for neurotropic, anti-carcinogenic, and anti-inflammatory effects. And more recently, there are a lot of interest regarding Fizotin as a very effective senolytic. So stenolytic or the ability to get rid of senescent cells, um, we should delve into that a little bit further. Senescence refers to non-dividing cells, which undergo chromosomal and protein changes due to DNA damage or cellular stress. And sometimes we'll hear providers referring to these as zombie cells. These are found in tissue samples of all vertebrates that have been tested in current studies. And it is found that there's a lower burden of senescent cells in younger individuals, but those um, uh, concentrations increased with aging. The existence of senescent cells can create a senescence-associated secretory phenotype, which relates to increased pro-inflammatory cytokines, increased chemokines, and increased extracellular matrix-degrading proteins. What that means is that uh, senescence itself is related to a number of different disease states. Um, in preclinical animal model studies, reduction in senescent cells reduced burden of certain healthcare conditions, including diabetes, pulmonary fibrosis, dementia, heart failure, osteoporosis, osteoarthritis, transplant complications, delaying onset of cancer, and just in general for anti-aging and uh, increased lifespan sorts of studies. But bringing this back to the point of the patient here is senescence and COVID-19. There is a hypothesis that the viral antigens from a COVID-19 infection shifts a pre-existing um, phenotype 
to an exacerbated disease state, which results in the increased inflam inflammation that is seen, as well as amplify the spread of senescence to other cells, which then further amplifies the inflammatory pathway. And as we know that a high senescent cell burden is associated with worsening health condition is the ongoing hypothesis. So by this um, increase in essence puts the patient in a pro-inflammatory state, having increased frailty, delays natural recovery processes, and associated with long-term tissue fibrosis. So is the fact that those who are having post-COVID or long hauler syndrome, those who are particularly prone to this increased SASP exacerbation. And that's why he is still persisting with these symptoms um, versus those who uh, those symptoms resolve shortly after infection. But the use of Fizatin is now theoretical. Um, if we follow all of these hypotheses, we can see where this benefit might occur from but there's currently not a lot of data for phytotin in human studies. And this link between senescence and COVID-19 is in animal studies currently. There's no optimal dosing because there is not uh, enough knowledge about phytotin for this indication, and it's only available as an over-the-counter supplement. However, there are ongoing Mayo studies with phytotin use, including that for COVID-19, which are in the works as of right now. Other considerations for the use of Fizotin, well, because it's mostly an antioxidant um, uh, from plant ma food materials, there's no lone side effects with use based on all of these studies. Um, more in vitro studies have found that it, uh, Fizotin might have a CYP2C8 inhibition effect, where known substrate, substrates of CYP2C8 may include pioglitazone, enzalutamide, amiodarone, olanzapine, and troposanol. So this is a lesser known interaction um, pathway, which may be pertinent if you see a patient who is on Fizotin. All right, so the other supplement that was recommended here was Specialized Pro-Resolving Mediator, or SBMs. SBMs are a mixture of bioactive lipids and they are a result of enzymatic oxygenation of polyunsaturated fatty acid or omega-3 acids, fatty acids. Um, they're studied for their effects in resolving inflammatory process molecules like prostaglandins and cytokines. Really where SBMs and COVID-19 comes from is this thought about COVID and inflammation. Um, one of the hypotheses that are here is that there's increased macrophages and sustained hyperinflammation with high viral loads. And what is seen is that there's excessive pro-inflammatory mediator and decreased SBMs in COVID-19 affected patient samples. So one of the ways that we think SBMs are helpful is that post-COVID is related to viral shredding, which means those viral material, viral material particles continue to trigger immune overreaction. And that causes a sustained inflammation despite the resolution of the initial infection, which is why the symptoms persist though the infection itself is gone. And because the use of SBMs are thought to um, alleviate the inflammatory processes, it can theoretically improve the post-COVID symptoms if you um, follow this hypothesis. So right now where the use of um, SBMs sit is that once again, current data for use is theoretical. The optimal dose is unknown. It is only available as an over-the-counter supplement by limited manufacturers, and the higher doses are quite costly based on my last um, 
shopping um, experience on the internet to look for these. Considerations that we have for this is SPMs are derived from um, unsaturated poly, uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids, such as fish oils. Um, there is some beginning studies that suggest that SPMs are generated when fish oils are taken with aspirin, which brings up a whole platitude of other questions, at least for my pharmacist brain, of all those cardiovascular benefits of fish oils and how that this plays into all of those. But that aside, we have not found any side effects with use of SBMs in current studies. Also, if we're looking at a safety profile, at least, given that there's limited evidence and SBMs are a result of fish oils, potentially just refer back to the safety profile of fish oils when we're um, considering a patient's use of these products. So now, moving back to this patient case, this hard question of what are your thoughts on adding these two supplements to his current regimen? And so first, let's think a little bit more about this. Which of the following are considerations to discuss with the patient for starting these therapies? Is it A, target dose of phytatin is 100 milligrams daily. B, phytatin is known to have many side effects. C, if supplement SBMs are expensive, you can review with the provider if we can use aspirin and fish oils instead. Or D, all of the above. All right, well, I hope I didn't trip you up here, but um, the correct answer is C. There is no known target dose of Fizotin. Actually, the dose I'm seeing in clinical practice is currently 500 milligrams twice daily. Um, and there are no known side effects of Fizotin other than that CYP2C8 potential inhibition for those medications. But C is correct in the fact that um, if the patient is unable to um, supplement SBM, so my last um, look at this is putting the cost at around $80 for a month of therapy to buy um, SBMs at the dose of around one gram twice daily, which is recommended. That might be uh, considerably more and maybe financially burdensome on, uh, on a patient, but aspirin and fish oils may be much less expensive and whether or not this is an appropriate um, Alternative um, may be dependent on the provider's experiences since we don't have enough studies to back this up. So all of the above is unfortunately not the right answer in this instance. And then the hard question itself here, would you advise use of five attendant SBMs for post-COVID based on the information we just went through? Is it A, yes to both? B, I only uh, would recommend five attendant? C, only SBMs, or D, no to both? All right, it's moving all over the place. No to both is currently winning, um, with yes to both coming in a short second there. And then Fizatin is winning over SBMs and those people who are divided between the two. Interesting. So my considerations for this, and this is granted only my clinical mindset, is that I am on the fence between yes or no. So what we do know is there's a lack of treatments for post-COVID long hauler syndrome. Most of our um, effects here are targeted at each individual syndrome. While these supplements are supposedly meant for overall improvements, potentially targeting more towards the underlying disease state itself, depending on which hypothesis you follow. There are um, positive animal studies for a variety of treatment for these disease states, but there's 
granted, no human studies, which is on the no side. And then CRPs are purportedly well tolerated. Of course, in the barrier that we have, cost is a major issue. We have the concerns with the sourcing materials, as well as, once again, the lack of human studies. No known dose, let alone um, symptom side effects, benefits, and all of that. So with all of that, I think it really comes down to talking about the goals of care with the patient themselves. What are their, um, what is the provider trying to do? Have we already um, exhausted known prescription medications? Are they still having effects that go beyond what we can potentially treat with current known therapies without adding to their side effects? What is the experience of maybe the um, post-COVID specialists in the use of these? Have they noticed um, these benefits? Are they talking to the clinical studies folks for some, you know, behind the scenes sort of gauge on which way um, the information is going? What is happening here? And with all of this, is the patient able to tolerate the cost of this since it appears to be relatively safe other than the increased pill burden and that one potential drug interaction effect. With all of that being said, I think any of the answers on the previous screen could be appropriate and um, would be difficult to determine just based on the amount of information I gave you in that case alone. So in summary here, um, supplements are a constantly changing field with new products and research out all the time, especially with this recent um, trend in pandemic-related research. It can be very difficult to find research supporting the safety and efficacy of certain supplements. It is important for clinicians to continue to know about popular supplements, maybe the places where they have been used or where they're trying to be used, and to talk to each other regarding what they're thinking and what might be um, coming out on the markets here. And it's important for um, everyone to individualize supplement therapy recommendations for patients, especially in disease states with limited prescription therapies, like some of the ones that we've talked about today. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.